welcome to the Minor Rex podcast. I'm Charlie, and today I'm joined by Nina, Maureen, and Angelo as we talk about celebrity memoirs. And specifically, we'll start off with a discussion of Jeanette McCurdy's debut memoir, I'm Glad My Mom Died, which came out last year and sort of shot to the top of the bestseller list and quickly became one of the most placed on hold items here at the library. But sort of at the outset here at the beginning, Let's do a little bit of housekeeping. I guess, first of all, a bit of a spoiler alert. I'm not sure how much you can spoil a nonfiction book, particularly one with as forthright a title as I'm Glad My Mom Died. But I think in order to discuss the book meaningfully, you do sort of have to talk about the contents of the book. So if you haven't read it yet, consider this sort of a fair warning. And the second warning is a different kind of warning, a trigger warning, or maybe a few trigger warnings, because... This book is very frank in discussing traumatic, harmful, and upsetting behavior, including but not limited to emotional, physical, and mental abuse, uh, domestic violence, disordered eating, alcoholism, mental illness, sort of you name it, it's in this book. So if you're particularly sensitive to discussions of those topics, this might not be the best episode for you, but let's get into it. How did y'all come to this book? So initially, I saw that this book was being talked about on The View, and that's how I knew that this was a big deal. Mm. But also, this book was sold out on Amazon, which never, ever happens. Right. Amazon never sells out of any book ever, but except this one. And then it was also on like a couple of bestsellers lists, and I was like, all right. We were starting a 20s and 30s book discussion group anyways, so I wanted to pick something that would be popular, that would get people to show up. And I was right. People did show up. Yeah. We had about 17 people. Yeah. Registration immediately blew up. Wow. And uh, I remember seeing like uh, the library social media accounts like uh, TikTok. Uh, we mm. did a advertisement on TikTok and there was like 900 views. Oh, wow. Yeah. And yes, the library is on TikTok. Come and subscribe to us. <laughs> <laughs> Do you think that the people who were excited about this book were iCarly fans uh, I was going to say, actually, like, I watched iCarly, but I was never really into it growing up. And the reason I actually found out about it was through TikTok. Um, and it became really popular. People were talking about how an amazing, like, what an amazing job she did and how they weren't expecting it from her, I think, is, like, one of the main things. Because I know, like, people that followed Jeanette, like, were aware of, like, her writing, like, if they were genuinely aware of, like, her craft and, like, her artwork. But from someone who really didn't know anything about what she was doing other than, like, iCarly. Um, I definitely wasn't expecting it, and I think she did really well in articulating herself. Yeah, I I definitely agree. Yeah, I think uh, just the title probably resonates with a lot of people in our generation. It's a very strong first impression. Yes, and I remember from the book club, I don't think they're, like, maybe half the people grew up watching iCarly. Most people wanted to discuss the book because of the title. Right. Yeah. Yeah, I think this book makes a really good first impression with the the like one-two punch of the title and the graphic design on the cover, which <laughs> yes. is sort of like a parody or pastiche of like maybe Judy Bloom books or just kind of like 80s, yeah. 90s young adult. Yeah. I was going to say that it was interesting because someone mentioned that they purchased the book at Barnes & Noble. Um, this is during the book discussion. And I was surprised that someone actually like had approached her and was like, why did you buy such a horrible sounding book <laughs> oh like gosh. with such a horrible title? And I was like, I mean, to me, it's like I never acknowledge the title as being like controversial or something because, mm. I mean, I don't know. I feel like I immediately was just like, maybe she has a reason, like, you know, like, <laughs> but people are just like, no, mm-hmm. like, and they were, we were, I think we went into it a little bit more in the book discussion because someone was like, well, I think it's like we look at like moms and like dads and like automatically assume 
that like we should respect them and right. like you know like that kind of a thing. So I think that they, like they mentioned that as well, and I was like, that's true. The person that made the comment was older, so I think mm. like a couple people that were like on the older side was like, you should respect your elders and your right. parents and that uh, whole thing. I, th- I think I might have made that. Uh, not the one about respect your elders, but the initial <laughs> comment in the book club about the uh, narcissistic parents. Uh, mm-hmm. I actually think uh, that is like the biggest reason why this book resonated with people, with, with millennials. I see a common online discourse on like Reddit or Tumblr or Twitter uh, in particular, there's a subreddit called Raised by Narcissists, mm. I guess a self-help group for people who uh, have abusive parents. It seems like the common opinion, which this book, going off the title, shares, is that it's okay to, if you have a narcissistic abusive parent, it's okay to cut ties with them, any and all ties. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Which, yeah. Uh, maybe it's just my opinion, but... It doesn't seem like that was the common stance in previous generations yeah. where you have sayings like respect your elders. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And um, I think like that tenant is talked about in the book. I remember I think it was like one of the later chapters where uh, Jeanette McCurdy goes to therapy. Mm. It was the therapist started to basically ask about uh, her relationship with her mom. Mm. And immediately Jeanette goes on the defensive. Right. Uh, she says that whenever resentments towards her mother would creep in, uh, she would curb them mm. uh, because uh, she wanted that narrative of, uh, you know, a parent loves their child right. to be intact. And uh, she says something along the lines of that that narrative was essential to her survival, essentially. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. The title of the book is almost sort of like a litmus test or an inkblot test of like what you see in it, because some people see just anger and some people see flippant humor and some people see like relief immediately followed by guilt about having that relief, which I think is you know true for a lot of people mm-hmm. who've had traumatic childhoods, um, because one thing this book is, is emotionally nuanced, like it's not all one thing. Everything is sort of layered together and tangled together. Like the love and the hate and the resentment and the gratitude are all parts of the same upbringing. And two, like the other thing that our book discussion really made me think of was how whenever like you hear of like a child actor, like Mm -hmm. going off the rails in quotes, something always triggers that. And if not one thing, it's a series of things. Mm -hmm. So it made me think about like, you know, how other celebrities have been treated kind of as like a joke now mm-hmm. because of like how wild they were in their 20s. But I think this memoir kind of taught me to think, so what happened to this person? Yeah. What choice did they have? Right. Do they have any choices? Was it a circumstance where they were just like controlled their whole lives and now they, as an adult, you're like, okay, you're on your own now. Yeah. What do you do? And some people just like can't handle it. And I think other people had other external factors. Because the other thing this book brings up, because not only was her mom abusive, but then there were abuses at Nickelodeon. Mm. And it's one of those other layers to the book that, like, I think people don't want to talk about. They'll mm-hmm. talk about her and her mom or in, like, her relationships with, like, her family. But, yeah, that whole, everything that was happening to her, plus Nickelodeon being really awful to their child actors. Mm. Um, and there's still investigations going on. Yeah, which is probably why the um, protagonist, uh, probably to protect libel lawsuits, is referred to as the creator rather than his real name, which is easily Googleable, <laughs> and which I will not mention because I don't want to be sued either. 
<laughs> yeah, yeah, but I think that was like another whole factor because like you're not safe at home and then you're not safe where you were. Yeah. So where are you safe? The answer is nowhere. And I thought right. that was like one of the scariest realizations. Mm. Yeah, I thought it was very telling that she talked about her mom and the creator in kind of the same terms, but she knew like yeah. I can't give the creator anything. Like I can't be too open with him because I know that he will use it to hurt me. Yeah. I was going to say, I think the only place that she felt safe um, was at church. And then even mm. that stopped because of her fame, basically. Cause her, and her mom also, like, I think stopped going because she she even asked her mom, like, oh, like, why did we stop going? Like, is it because, like, we don't need anything anymore? You know? And then she's, like, really defensive about it. Like, and she didn't really answer her. <laughs> yeah. Going off of that, I think uh, that's another thing that's a uh, big reason people read this book is because this is obviously the age of Me Too and uh, huge uh, scandals like Harvey Weinstein. So uh, yeah, kind of similar realm of the topic. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I think that all of us are sort of of an age where we grew up watching Nickelodeon. You know, we, we probably have our own complicated uh, feelings about it where it's like it was a comfort to watch it when we were growing up. And then we learn more about the people who created the shows Still heartbroken about Ren and Stimpy. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. I, I will say I was not in the iCarly demographic. I was in college at the time that it started, and it never occurred to me to watch it because, you know, it was not marketed to me. Like, it, it, if I was a 21-year-old man watching iCarly, people would have asked questions. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, like, when she talks about certain iCarly running jokes and plot lines, I thought, Really? That can't be true. There is no way that Nickelodeon would have made this anorexic teenage star obsessed with food in her character. But then curiosity gets the better of me, and I go on YouTube and search for Sam Puckett Fried Chicken, and I kid you not, the official Nickelodeon YouTube page has put up a five-minute supercut of Jeanette McCurdy's character eating fried chicken. Knowing now that she had such a toxic relationship with food and the mental struggle that was going on. It's one of the more disturbing things I've seen on the internet recently. And you know the internet is just occasionally a cesspool. Occasionally? Occasionally. <laughs> but yeah, and the other really disturbing thing too is Jeanette was taught how to be anorexic by her mom. Mm, yeah. And like that becomes a thing where it's not just an eating disorder. Now it's like a learned behavior as a child yeah. that is like, really really hard to like reprogram now yeah i'm going back to what you were saying about like the video that you saw mm. um i genuinely just like i inferred from what she was talking about um when she was specifically talking about nickelodeon that nickelodeon just did not care about their child actors like whatsoever because i mean there's it's obvious once she's trying on like bikinis mm. like she's vividly like uncomfortable and her mom sees that as well and um i think the dresser also sees that and they just kind of like look the other way and like oh, i'll encourage her to like try it on like come on like what's the harm and trying wants on. options yeah and i'm like that's yeah. i mean someone should have been like at least her mom mm -hmm. that's her mom she should have been like um well if you don't want to like do it it's fine you know yeah there ought to be some protector in that situation and it seems a lot of time there's just no one there and then it also like leads to like sexualization because like one of the main things that she was discussing when she mentioned like the bikini incident she was like i was not ready to be sexually like looked at and i think that's like a big part like that resonates with women specifically because we really don't have any control over like when our bodies develop and 
specifically when people start looking at us. So I think that's something that um, really tied in well with how like Nickelodeon treated the, like the child actors because even they like didn't mm-hmm. consider that they like were putting them in that change. Like it's mm-hmm. a drastic change to go through that, you know, and it's something that you really can't mentally prepare for. Similar to that, uh, one of the things that disturbed me about this book, and uh, this kind of is a common with any child celebrity, is how much of your childhood development is recorded. Mm-hmm. Uh, she talks about how uh, her first kiss was with one of her co-stars yeah. uh, for the show. And I don't know, like, I would not want any part of my childhood to be recorded <laughs> and shown to millions of people. Yeah. yeah. The discomfort that she also had yeah. with having her first kiss be on, yeah. on screen. And, and not only that, uh, the creator, I think it was, he was just like, do it again. And he, he like made 10, her, 15 yeah. times. I mean, it was, and then you have, um, I forgot the guy's name. I know his name in the show of Freddie. And he just like tells her, like, it's fine, like kind of consoling her through it. But I feel like, I mean, I guess we don't have his perspective. We're looking at her perspective. But it seemed to me that when she was talking about that, he seemed a little bit more okay with it than she was and maybe he wasn't because you know we're not getting his perspective but yeah do we think this is a tell-all book i would definitely think it is in some ways i think that it's definitely like a tell about like Jeanette mccurry's childhood and how she grew up but it's also a little bit revealing about how nickelodeon has some really troubling rather recent history yeah and they don't seem to have learned their lesson um, I don't think any media company that has a lot of child actors have really like learned how to treat their child actors well. Yeah. Disney is not exempt either. They're just as guilty as Nickelodeon is. For those of you who are keeping score, like, oh, I hate Nickelodeon. Disney's not better. Yeah. I think, if anything, they're probably worse. Yeah, it's a systemic problem, it seems. Yeah, and they're actually, I forgot who's doing it, but there is a former child actress who actually is trying to get an act passed through Congress for better protections for child actresses mm-hmm. and actors, just because like there's not a lot of protections. Your main protections, based on this book, if you're a child actor, seem to be about going to school, mm-hmm. and that's really about it. No one ever, like... Even when Jeanette was getting like at her sickest, no one really asked about her well-being. No one was like, "You need to send this person to a doctor." They didn't like. No one cared about her as long as she was there at work working. Yeah, and that's just like the corruption of like just money and focusing on money. I mean, I think it's just mm-hmm. like a worldwide problem. Like, oh, we should just put this under the table because money is being made. Why I ask about tell-alls is because. Tell-all books are an interesting genre. Like, I think this book has some similarities to something like Mommy Dearest, the book written by Joan Crawford's adopted daughter, who's later turned into a movie. You know, it's another kind of story of an overbearing mother and what's going on behind closed doors. But I think that a lot of times, like, tell-all books have this reputation of being, like, poorly written, kind of slapdash affairs. Usually there's a ghostwriter it's just kind of sensationalized and made for the headlines. I appreciate that this book has a lot more nuance than that. For one, it's actually really skillfully written. Like, I think that Jeanette McCurdy's decision to write the whole book in present tense is incredibly effective because you don't get that kind of omniscient narrator, like the voice of present-day Jeanette saying, I know that's messed up now, and here's why it's messed up. You just get her perspective as young Jeanette, and you know she'll tell you about worrying behaviors without naming them, but you'll say, oh, that's OCD. That's the beginning of anorexia. That's whatnot. But yeah. she doesn't think that. She's sort of internalizing all of this abusive behavior. And 
because it's coming from the loving stability that she knows as her family. She just accepts it and incorporates it into her personality. It's very hard to read from the perspective of a you know, 9, 10, 11-year-old that she's being forced to cry on cue, that sort of thing. I think the fact that she was six for most of the beginning mm-hmm. and the emotional intelligence that she has, um, because we talked about that a good amount in the, in the book group, mm-hmm. someone was also mentioning how like maybe the mom didn't know any better because you can see in the book that her mom is also pretty awful, mm-hmm. so Jeanette's grandmother. And I think we went into like what the mom was responsible for since she also seemed to have a mom that was very similar mm-hmm. I made like the comment that uh, Jeanette, being as emotionally intelligent as she was at six years old, I really can't give the mom too much of a... I can't really ease up on her Mm. because of that. Because, I mean, she goes into detail about how controlling her mom is in like every way. And something that really stayed with me was when she said that she couldn't have a doll. Like this doll, I forgot what the name of the doll was, but the doll had short hair. And her mom was like, you can't have that doll. And she basically explained why, and she was like, well, the doll had short hair, so she, my mom didn't want me to eventually want to, like, emulate that doll and right. cut my hair off. Yeah. And I was like, who even thinks like that? <laughs> like, you know, like, that's someone that's, like, literally a narcissist and is just controlling in every single way. I mean, I really can't see how you can interpret it any other way. Yeah, and to hear such inexcusably behavior be repeatedly excused by the narrator— is just so frustrating. And, you know, when she does start to go to therapy and kind of untangle all of this, it's very powerful to read. I mean, yeah, it's especially powerful to read one. I didn't have, I I mean, I don't think my mom's a narcissist. (laughs) So um, I really didn't have any experience with like dealing with someone who's a narcissist. Like, I don't think anybody in my family is, especially like her mom. So reading about how like her mom is controlling every single detail of her life and just like Nickelodeon does. I mean, she doesn't care to like make her comfortable. She doesn't care about what she wants. She's just like a doll, <laughs> like a right. puppet to her and for her own expenses. And that's it. There was quite a lot of people that came to the book club that said that this book, you know, basically reminded them of their moms. Mm. One person uh, basically says something along the lines of like they had to put the book down because it was giving them a panic attack. Mm. Uh, which show how strong uh, Jeanette McCurdy's writing can be. Yeah. Yeah. And also how much kind of unprocessed trauma a lot of people just carry with them from day to day. I I think we said it at the beginning, like mothers in particular are considered sort of like the stabilizing force in the family. Mm -hmm. But everyone's parents are not perfect. You know, everyone has human parents with flaws and faults. And as you grow old and become in your 20s and 30s, you do start to realize maybe that wasn't the best decision for everyone. And so even if someone's parents aren't as bad as Deb McCurdy seems to be, you can still make connections and draw parallels and get a lot out of it. So the book is divided into two parts. There's before and after the mom dies. And in the after section, I think it's really interesting how many of the things she talks about are mirrors of what happened in the before section. Yes. Like, there were some bits where I I didn't kind of know why she was spending so much time either writing about or just dating this one particular significant other who just seems like a mess. Like, he's got serious drug problems. He's got a a mental illness. He's really struggling in a lot of ways. And I'm like, 
why don't you just dump him? <laughs> but then I realized, like, wait, he's sort of messed up in all the ways her mom was messed up. Maybe not the exact same ways, but she has to fulfill the same sort of protective and, you know, has to clean up a lot of his messes in the same way. And it's like taking her mom's place in a way. Yeah. But that's also the section where she realizes, like, this can't go mm. on forever either because she's realizing that, like, there's things I want to do in my life. And if he's not going to ever get his act together and do what he needs to do, then I can't be with him. Yeah. So at least I like that she sort of comes to the conclusion that, you know, she has to start cutting out her grandma now because her yeah. grandma is also, like, never going to stop leaving her abusive phone messages and everything yeah. like that, too. So yeah. Growth in a lot of ways is just, you know, setting boundaries and abiding by them. I think um, as well as, like, I feel like generations have become more adept to, like, pointing out when our parents are not being the greatest just people in general. Sure. <laughs> um, I grew up and I was always a very opinionated person and I always called my parents out all the time. Um, and they always were like, you should respect me because I'm like your parent, you know, like mm -hmm. whatever. And I was like, well, why should I respect you if you're not respecting me? And they just kind of like, what, what can they say to that, right, you know? That's, that's a non-starter. Yeah. <laughs> so the book, like, for people that maybe have grew up with that mentality of, like, just not questioning their parents, it really did open up their their eyes. And, like, of course, like, my like nobody's parents are going to be perfect. So I think, like, the conversation of, like, you should really be able to cut people off if they're not being productive in your life, especially, like, blood, mm. you know? Mm -hmm. yeah. and, and, of course... Her mom's diagnosis of cancer is sort of like the shadow over the whole book because that, that's one more thing that you can't argue with. Like, you can't argue with your parents, and you especially can't argue with your dying parent because, you know, the, the cancer is a fact, and it's tragic, and it just it makes it hard to have the tough conversations. I wanted to quickly mention and yeah. say that I know we're in spoiler territory. Sure. <laughs> uh, but that if you haven't read it, I think we're on agreement to, uh, to recommend the book. Would you uh, recommend reading the book or the audiobook? Uh, I hear really good things about the audiobook for mm. people that have listened to it. So I did both. I read the book and then I listened to the audiobook. And I really liked um, the way that Jeanette McCurdy reads the audiobook as well. Mm. So if you wanted to do the audiobook, I would highly recommend it. Yeah. I think that before she even wrote this book, she did a like a one-woman show yeah. uh, with the same title. So it started as a mostly audio-visual thing. Yeah. Yeah. I started reading the book, but I just found myself putting it down because it was just too much. And so when I did discover that you could, you know, download the e-audio book and listen to it, I did that. And, you know, I always like listening to memoirs read by the person who wrote them because it's sometimes just like having a conversation with them. But I, I think there's one particularly powerful moment in the audio book, and it's in the scene that Angela was talking about where she goes to therapy for the first time. Most audiobooks are really very tightly edited, like this podcast. <laughs> and, you know, they, they cut out any ums and errs and stumbles and whatnot. But they left in this incredible sigh in that chapter that is so heartbreaking and so emotionally painful. I just had to hit pause and do the dishes and just, I'll, I'll get back to this later. This is too much. Yeah. It's, it's very real. I also had to put the book down and a bunch of times, and I actually listened to the audiobook as well, and I found it a little bit more like 
it was like forcing me to like listen to it because I was because with the book I had to like I need a break, I need yeah. to put it down for a moment, and then with like the audiobook, I was just like, okay, I need to, I need to listen to this, and <laughs> yeah. So we're on agreement. We recommend uh, either reading the book or listening to the audiobook. And there are quite uh, a few other memoirs we wanted to discuss today. If you uh, are a fan of uh, I'm Glad My Mom Died, I think the most obvious next recommendation would be uh, to read Crying in H Mart by Michelle Zahner. Uh, this was another hugely popular celebrity memoir that uh, released recently, uh, 2022, if I recall correctly. I think, yeah. Coincidentally, uh, this is another book about the death of the author's mother and how it affected her in her career. Zahner's relationship was similarly uneasy. Her mother definitely didn't come off as a narcissist in the same way that uh, McCurdy's does. But uh, the theme of you know death of a parent is handled uh, similarly, but also in very different, uh, unique ways. Crying in H Mart uh, also focuses on uh, a few other concepts than just death of a parent. It also focuses on a uh, Asian American identity and uh, the importance of food and culture, and I, I think because of those that more like kind of complex thematic development, I kind of prefer crying in H Mart mm. uh, slightly more than I'm glad my mom died. Said so the cultural element is what. Yeah, the uh, obviously the title was crying in H Mart. H Mart is a brand of uh, Korean food stores, and uh, even though it's a sad memoir, you can almost read the book like a cookbook. Uh, there are so many references to uh, Korean dishes. The book actually, I believe, starts off with her in H Mart. <laughs> <laughs> I remember I actually helped a book club outside the library. They were reading Crying in H Mart, mm. and they said, oh, yeah, we're all going to read it, then go to H Mart and actually discuss the book. Yeah, <laughs> perfect. So, perfect idea. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't read Crying in H Mart yet. I'm a big fan of Michelle Zahner's indie rock band, uh, Japanese Breakfast, and I've heard that the book is phenomenal, yeah. but... It's still on my to-do list. Yeah. I became a fan of the band after I read the book. Uh, you, you get to see her uh, start off how the band came to be, mm. yeah, which is pretty cool. Nice. Are there any other memoirs anyone wanted to bring up? I read a whole lot of celebrity memoirs, but usually they're not very tell-all-y. Usually it's just like a very old musician telling their war stories. So, you know, I enjoyed the Peter Frampton book recently. I enjoyed the Bono book. I, you know, I read all sorts of the... Boomer rock uh, books. <laughs> but it seems those are less like confessional and less, you know, because they're sort of looking back at a full life, they're usually more measured. And I think that memoirs written by people in their 30s, like Jeanette McCurdy is just 30 now and like has her whole life ahead of her and is just starting to work through some of these issues. Mm-hmm. It, it's sort of more raw. The text tends to be a lot more focused. Focused, yeah. yeah. Specific. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, the other um, memoir slash autobiography that I read was High School by Tegan and Sarah. Oh, okay. Because um, that's also about how they – it's about a lot of things. It's about how they became a band. Mm-hmm. It started out with, you know, the two of them in Canada because they're Canadian. But it talks about, like, how they went through, like, middle school and high school just, like, doing their band music things, like, after school by stealing their dad's guitar and then, like, recording things and how they later get, like, a record contract. And it's also talking about, like, growing up with homophobia in Canadian high schools Mm -hmm. in the 90s um, and, like, drug use and other things that happened as, like, part of their lives. But it was a really good, well-done Sort of like, if you want to know the history of the band, that's the thing you should read. Okay. And I am a fan of Tegan and Sarah, but have not read that. 
it is now also on my to-do list. <laughs> and I hear they're making a television adaptation of that. There's a television adaptation, and then there is a middle school version of like their middle school years that's being told in graphic novel form. Oh, nice. And that's coming out soon, too. Okay. And I think they also put out a record of them now re-recording songs that they wrote as teenagers. Yeah, they did. So it's a a whole multimedia uh, project, it sounds like. Yeah, it truly is. So we definitely have that album that you can check out on CD form. Wonderful. Yeah. Uh, I haven't read it, but one of the uh, book clubs coming up pretty soon is A Spare by Prince Mm. Harry, uh, which is another hugely popular memoir. Yeah, Uh, the whole list is long. (laughs) Yeah, the whole queue has like 800 people on it. (laughs) But if you join the book club, uh, you'll get a copy right away. (laughs) (laughs) We're going to have like 800 people who want to join that book club. We should mention that we cap it at like what, 30? 20. Okay, 20. 20 people. First 20, you get one. (laughs) But yeah, I think that Prince Harry's memoir is one that I've read a lot about because it seemed to have been serialized. And before it came out, there was a lot of the revelations started making their way to gossip websites and headlines and whatnot. It seems a lot of the sensationalized aspects of these memoirs make their way to us first because, you know, they're headline grabbing. Mm. But it doesn't really give us any of why that information is important or meaningful. Well, some of it I feel like is Prince Harry was trying to, with some of the more salacious details, shall Mm. we say, that I will not get into because you probably know what I'm talking about if you've read any headlines about anything he said recently. Um, He was trying to get ahead of the British tabloids is what he claims to be doing. Mm -hmm. Um, So they can't take some of the more graphic and like intimate details of his memoir and like leak it for like profits. He sort of like beat them to the punch. I see. Do I believe that narrative? (laughs) I don't know. It's great publicity anyway you slice it. Yeah. And I'm also just like, great. Another insufferable thing that we have to like deal with for the next however many months. Mm. I'm all for like a good tell, but this I feel like is just like a money grab of sorts because mm. I feel like there's been many attempts by Prince Harry just to make a project to make lots of money. I'm just mm. like, this might be the thing. It's doing well so far, but yeah. I hope this is very successful so he can just like fade away. <laughs> we don't hear from him in a very long time. Oh my gosh. I mean, he has in the Netflix documentary, and he also has one on Hulu, because I'm pretty sure they're completely different. Mm. Because why would you just have one? (laughs) I mean, I've seen a bunch of things come up, and I was like, oh, okay. And then, like, he has, like, this book coming out, and I'm like, you know, you you do what you got to do. I mean, I guess he's not on the royalties payroll anymore is what it looks like. I'm I'm guessing that the the royal family has such a firm command of the narrative that they want to set forth— To counter that narrative, he has to sort of use every option. So, you know, I'm sure there's a podcast next. I'm sure he'll be doing (laughs) speaking engagements. And, you know, you've not heard the last of Prince Harry, I'm sorry to say. Hmm. (laughs) I mean, I think, like, the whole thing about it is that they were, like, seemingly the royal family was being racist. I mean, Hmm. and so was the tabloids in Britain. And I think there's really, like, I mean, how can you disagree with that? Mm -hmm. You know, because it's just so obvious. Yeah. So I guess there's that aspect to it. I mean, the royal family is a very different world from TV moms living vicariously through their kids. But there does seem to be sort of a parallel with the Jeanette McCurdy book of being brought up in this 
very controlled atmosphere where no one says exactly what they're thinking or what's important and how that screws you up as an adult. Everything has a script, basically, with them. Right. It's all about image, and that's how celebrities are as well. I mean, they have to, like, keep everything looking neat. Mm -hmm. Essentially, the job of—that's why they have publicists. Right. I guess that brings up the question, to what extent are memoirs works of PR? Like, how much of celebrity memoirs are the celebrities trying to give you their version of events, and how reliable should we take it? I feel like it's inevitable to have like a memoir because like usually there's a bunch of obstacles you have to go through to be like it's not easy to be famous it's not easy to seemingly like just go right into like working and acting and not really having a childhood I feel like it's something that any celebrity could really talk about no matter if they have like a seemingly uneventful life Compared to, like, you know, Jeanette, she has a lot going on with, like, her family dynamic. And even if you cut that aspect and you don't have that, you still have your rise to fame to talk about, you know, like your life before you were famous. I mean, um, Selena Gomez even came out with, like, a documentary on, like, I think Apple TV. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I mean, like, a bunch of celebrities. Like, it's just common to, like, look up celebrity and they most likely will have a documentary. Right. And it seems like recently those documentaries have had more of these sort of personal disclosures of things that when they're in the public eye, you you don't want to talk about abuse or these situations that kind of mold you and affect you. But now we are seeing a lot of, like there's the Paris Hilton documentary, there's the Taylor Swift documentary. I'm not sure how much the Justin Bieber documentary shed light on his situation, but I think that that's sort of a thing that a lot of young actors and actresses and media personalities are doing, just going... This is my perspective. This is how my life has gotten me to this point. I think a lot of it is PR. Uh, And that's Mm -hmm. probably why I'm kind of averse to reading this genre in general. Crying in H Mart was the first book I did. Uh, First uh, celebrity memoir I read. And then uh, I'm Glad My Mom Died was the second. And I think what heightens those is that they actually have an issue they want to address Mm -hmm. and not just be like, this is my life. Right. I'm glad my mom died. Oh, with uh, in regards to that, Jeanette McCurdy, she's not a uh, actress anymore, right? Uh, so it's not like she's doing PR for like the next movie she's doing, right? Yeah. I mean, I think it's also like, are you really going to air your dirty laundry? Like, <laughs> you know, like yeah. so, really, how honest can it be? Mm-hmm. You know, and I think that's like what's missing for me. Like that's why, like, I'm not particular to memoirs or documentaries because you're not getting down to like essentially what it is to be a human being, which is mm-hmm. like making mistakes and. Growing from that, I think, like, celebrities, um, not everybody, but, like, PR, since it is more like a PR stunt, is that you want everybody to like you and understand you. And when your dirty laundry is aired all the time and people are profiting off of that, you know, you kind of want to be like, oh, well, you know, that's not everything I am. Yeah. Has there been any biographic movies uh, staying in the realm of nonfiction uh, that you've seen recently that you want to discuss? I know that a big one last year was uh, The Beatles' Get Back. Oh, yes. (laughs) As listeners to this podcast know, I I am a card-carrying Beatle maniac, and so I have seen all eight hours of Get Back a couple times at this point. (laughs) And it's really a remarkable documentary because it it does kind of take place in real time. The, The fact that The Beatles were followed for this one month, the January 1969 It's maybe the most eventful month of their whole seven-year or so uh, span in that time. Like, George quits, 
Yeah. Alan Klein gets into the picture and it's the portrait of a band sort of spiraling because their manager, Brian Epstein, had died like a year and a half before and they didn't replace him. And so you see like the biggest band in the world sitting in a room, not being able to get a decent sound system, not knowing where to put on their big show. You know, they're kind of flailing. Uh, my favorite aspect of what I saw, I saw maybe uh, two hours is the kind of uh, archival footage mm. that's never been shown before. And you, right. you, you get to see, like, alternate takes of famous songs yeah. and them, like, practicing and them, like, thinking, hey, maybe we should do this mm. chorus yeah, instead of, yeah. like, the, yeah. As a musician, it's fascinating to see them working on things and just deciding on arrangement ideas that are now just sort of, you know, that's the way the song goes. But <laughs> being able to see, you know, Paul McCartney come up with the melody of Get Back out of thin air, it's, you know, powerful for any creative person to sort of see the act of creation, I think. Yeah, the whole thought process and what goes into it. I mean, it's, like, beautiful to see. That's why, like, I I didn't watch Get Back, but I watched, like, a documentary of the Beatles in general, and it just talks about, like, their meaning behind the song. Because sometimes Mm. you can just listen to a song and you just, like, are so focused on, like, how the aesthetics of it, like, how beautiful it sounds, and sometimes we forget to look at, like, the lyrics so it was. it's just always interesting when musicians come out with things like that. Yeah, and I, I love all music documentaries, especially when they do have that footage that no one has seen before that's been you know sitting in a cupboard for 50 years. Like the other film that came out around the same time, uh, Summer of Soul, is just phenomenal. Uh, that's uh, directed by Questlove from a trove of footage shot the same year, 1969, but at this festival in, in New York, in Harlem, which was just filled with the best black entertainers, the best musicians at that time. I'm, I'm baffled that this amazing Sly and the Family Stone and Stevie Wonder and you know, all of that footage hasn't been seen yet. But what's powerful about it is not just like, oh my God, look at their clothes or <laughs> listen to the music, but it's like just the audience shots you know, in the middle of this incredibly turbulent time in the late 60s. I can't possibly imagine what it's like to be a black American in the late 60s. But when you see, like, kids dancing and, like, people instantaneously smiling on hearing a song that they love, it's very powerful. It speaks to how music, you know, helps you through the hard times. Yeah, and Questlove is coming out with a second documentary too soon. I don't know what it's about, but sign me up. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, as, As a closing thought for me... Reading uh, these two uh, celebrity memoirs, it made me let go of my risk aversion to reading this genre, and it's also kind of warmed me up to celebrities, uh, where it's easy to not view them as like, you know, a typical person or celebrity. Um, You could be like, oh, they don't have any problems, they have plenty of money, Uh, but uh, I'm glad my mom died. You definitely connect with Jeanette McCurdy, and she's like not someone that I... Knew anything about... Uh, Same. I think the first time I saw a picture of her was on the cover of the book. Oh, that's funny. <laughs> <laughs> the biggest takeaway I got from I'm Glad My Mom Died was just to be very critical about the structures that surround you mm. um, in your personal and or professional life because people are not always who they claim to be. And don't be scared to push back against people who hurt you. What the book taught me is like just because they're a relative or your parent or someone like blood related, like it doesn't matter. You should be cautious of how people treat you and what their intentions are, you know, cause it's not always like honorable. 
Yeah, don't be afraid to advocate for yourself and speak up when something doesn't feel right. Mm -hmm. Because, yeah, I think that this book is in many ways kind of like an encyclopedia of the ways that harmful behavior in childhood can manifest as an adult. None of us can know each other's personal history, just uh, meeting each other. So just be kind and <laughs> and empathetic towards people because you, you never know how they were brought up or what stuff they haven't dealt with yet. And normalize going to therapy. Because <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I think it's beneficial no matter what life you've had. It's always something to learn from it. Well, I feel better after this session. <laughs> <laughs> Well, thanks everyone for listening, and we will see you next time on the Minor Rex podcast. Bye-bye.